we're on a pretty good roll of good books. There was a, a bad spell for a while, but now we're back on a streak. We Last week's Destroy All Monsters was good, and this week's is, I'm going to say, really good. Could be a book of the year for me. And we got a decent guest, too. Um, One hopes. Yeah, well, you know, you're going to have to re-push yourself for this book, because it's a, it's a, it's a tough one. Uh, yeah, Nate from Hell of a Way to Die and Trash Future. So Hello. start saluting now because he's <laughs> a, a troop. Yeah. Um, by which I mean he is success mostly successfully tried to get Trash Future guys to stop talking about streetwear and doing Bane impressions uh, and uh, actually make a functioning podcast. That's yeah. Yeah, so if I if I have if I have any post traumatic stress, it's because of trying to get three people, uh, none of whom want to agree on the direction of things, to do a podcast on UK politics and keep it on topic. Um, but yeah, my my name is Nate Bethay. I uh, I like as you said, I host um, What a Hell of a Way to Die, and, and also sometimes Trash Future. And I um, am a writer, um, and I also uh, was in the U.S. Army for seven years. Um, specifically, I was an infantryman and deployed to Afghanistan in two thousand nine, two thousand ten. So have tried to um, to write about my experience and have have paid some attention at least to the successes and failures of some veteran writers. So um, mm. yeah, this, 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 this book was a breath of fresh air. I'll just say that off the bat compared to some of the stuff that I've seen in the past. And so I'm happy to, to be on here to talk about it. Yeah. Uh, the book, cause I haven't int even introduced that. You've probably seen it in like the show notes, obviously, but it is um, Nico Walker's cherry. And it's not a hundred percent of Iraq war book. Uh, it's also a drug book. And it's pr pretty excellent at both, like Dennis Johnson levels of good at being a drug book. And, well, I don't know who's a good war story guy at being a war book, but it's pretty damn good. And probably a lot of folks are going to have at least heard the story of it by now. Uh, so Nicholas Walker goes by Nico. Uh, well, just just go to BuzzFeed and look up Nico Walker because there's a very fascinating story of his life, and he's a uh, well, he was a medic uh, deployed to Af Iraq during like the really really bad times yeah. of what is a yeah, and and, and 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 to be fair from his descriptions of what he described where he was in Iraq, I recognize it because I was in a unit that had been there before in that same area in Iskandaria. Um, he doesn't go into detail, but from the, the, the physical descriptions of some of the locations, I absolutely recognize what he's talking about. And mm, that power was, plant and yeah, stuff, yeah, right? the, the oil, oil burning power plant at, at, in Iskandaria. Yeah, that was one of the worst areas of the war, barring some of the stuff out in like Ambar province. Um, and during that period uh, where he was there in 05, 06, when the, the Civil War really kicked off, um, what he experienced was probably as close to the worst as it got for american soldiers I, I can imagine as as anywhere you'd see um hmm. so yeah w when i recognize that uh you, he definitely has has walked the walk in a way and it definitely seemed from from what i saw to be very unadorned like he just kind of told what he saw and so seeing that was um what, what, what was striking i'll just say that to not not steal your thunder too much here oh no uh, yeah he uh yeah like a, like you say he was in the worst of the worst i mean he's um and he was a, a medic, so obviously he was seeing like the literal blood and guts of it. But he was also a medic, which, as I understand from this, literally just this BuzzFeed article, and maybe you can corroborate this, medics don't often get stuck into the actual fighting. And he was 
carrying around an M16 and going kicking down doors and stuff. And that's not common for medics, right? Am I... No, I mean, it's it's not. And I mean, wh what that makes me think is that, I mean, if that was the case uh, for him, then that, that gives you some insight to how shorthanded they might have been or that... You know, if if a medic uh, decides he wants to do that and the, the, the person in charge, the squad leader or the team leader, whoever trusts him, then they might. Um, it's pretty uncommon because, I mean, if your medic goes down, then you're kind of screwed, especially if you're out there, um, you know, uh, out, out like a platoon isolated and it's just you. But um, at the same time, though, I mean, what he was describing, it sounded like. Um, you know, and in time he just kind of, cause he, cause, cause being a medic means that you, you aren't, your job is to do medical things. You're not as, but you can be assigned to the softest of soft units, or you could be in the hardest of hard units. You're not going to be in like a special operations unit as a regular medic. But in his case, you know, in the beginning of the book, he talks about when he gets in the army, talking about trying to get assigned to like a sweet job somewhere. And instead, he um, he gets sent to uh, a brigade of the Fourth Infantry Division at Fort Hood, Texas, um, and so he he's out with an infantry unit, you know, a mechanized infantry unit in Iraq, and is riding around, you know, and people are getting blown up, and he's having to treat them. Um, and so what he experienced was, you know, he he could have been in a hospital stateside his whole time in the army, but instead he was out, you know, getting blown up, getting fucked up, um, and you know, dealing with the consequences of that. Yeah, and is that like a thing you could? Well, it's obviously a thing you can do, but I I didn't realize that was a, a possibility that you can like multi-class as a soldier that you can be a medic who also kicks down doors. I mean, that most certainly would not have been his job. Um, I think that it like that might be an embellishment. It might also be that that was just his unit let him do that. Um, but I mean, if 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 I'm a person making a decision and the medic wants to go in and kick in doors like if i trust the medic then or if there's a reason why we need to do that then so be it but that sounds to me like a, something of an unusual situation but but not unheard of i mean really not unheard of um it really just depends on the situation i mean um it, also to be perfectly honest from what he described in this and you know looking at this through the lens of that things are going to get fictionalized no matter what that far into a deployment if your medic is like no i want to kick in doors then th their people are in that unit and be like, well, fine, if you want to, you want to be the one risking your ass, then do it. You know what I mean? Like, oh. like it, it doesn't surprise me that, um, but, but also, I mean, who knows? It, it's one of those things where nothing about what he described struck me as so far fetched that it would seem impossible. Um, mm. and in fact, there were a number of details when he wrote about his experiences in the military where I was like, wow, this, this is, he clearly is not making this up because those are the kinds of things you just wouldn't know. Um, you know, like if you remember early in the book, he talks about, uh, basically sneak going, technically going AWOL, though he's not out long enough to get caught. Um, but he knows he can't fly out of the Colleen, Texas airport because they're going to look for paperwork. So his friend has to drive him to a different airport so he can fly out to go see his girlfriend. That's the kind mm -hmm. of thing that you wouldn't, I mean, that a person who's, who's embellishing or fictionalizing an experience who hasn't been in that situation wouldn't know. Um, so reading that right off the bat, there was a certain degree of authenticity that came through, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, the, the whole authenticity side of things is kind of why I wanted a former soldier to be talking about this because, um, I'm very much not cut out for the military at all. My, my whole family is a military people like Navy and Air Force, but I'm just, I would be a liability. And, um, yeah, it's like when he's talking about like 
like the drug culture in the military mm -hmm. like how authentic is that because the only like exposure i have to that is like vietnam war films and they're yeah. probably a bit out of date by now i mean um so i think that it's absolutely true what he's describing i think that um so i'll put it into perspective uh i stayed friends with a number of my soldiers when i got out of the military and i was an officer i wasn't i wasn't enlisted um so i was the person they had to keep the secrets from um but then oh. when we got out we all got out you know I, I i was friends with with them later and came to learn a lot of things like when we were deployed you know it was very easy to get hash in afghanistan and so a lot of them would smoke weed a lot um you know, people who could get their hands on drugs, other drugs would do them. People who would get their hands on alcohol would do them. It doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, we had a soldier in my battalion get caught smoking weed on a convoy. Like he was literally in the turret and was smoking a joint. Um, oh. and he was past, past giving a fuck at that point. Um, That's but, yeah. but, uh, wow. that, that did happen. I mean, and, and the further out you got, you'd hear stories about like, I mean, I, I, it's all apocryphal, but I've heard stories of people saying like, yeah, the, you know, we landed on some random fire base where there was just like one platoon that would get rotated out. Like, you know, they'd be there for 30 days and their company would bring in another platoon and they would refit. And like, we'd come out there and there would just be just soldiers just blazing weed, just like no one giving a shit. Um, so I do think that that's real. Um, I, I, and I think that him being a medic, he would have access to some, control, <coughs> some controlled substances. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that some of the things he described, like, well, I knew that when I was on leave, I was going to get piss tested when I got back. So I had to, to like, smoke weed on the front a couple of days and then not do any afterwards or, um, you know, just like the various hookups that, you know, to like avoid the system that that that's very true to my experience. And I mean, it wasn't until I got out that I realized, you know, from because I mean, we we do piss tests and soldiers would get caught for drugs. Like it wasn't until I got out that I realized how uh, how much more ubiquitous the drug use was. Um mm -hmm. And specifically, I mean, in an almost sinister way, um, THC from marijuana stays in your system much longer than other drugs. Um, and yeah, so like 20 days. Right? Yeah, I mean, I think it's like really it's more like 14 at most. But like the literature says up to like 28 days. And so weed, the drug that was probably the most benign for our soldiers to be smoking, they, they knew they'd get in trouble. And so instead they would like do ecstasy or coke or amphetamines or like K2. And it's way, way harder and way worse for you. Um, but there definitely was a culture of that. I mean, hearing from my soldiers after the fact, I, I, I read, I reading this book, like none of this, none of this struck me. None of this struck me as, um, as, uh, far-fetched. And also what Nico Walker talking about his drug use before the military, his recruiter kind of like having to like help him make sure his piss was clean before he got in. And then like going seamlessly out of the military into like more drug use that, that struck me as very authentic. Yeah. I've, I've heard things about like lowering the standards of um recruits just to like get your numbers up when you're a recruiter like how bad is that uh, compared to like the surge where they're trying to throw as many bodies over there as they could that's what he was describing i think was that period of time in the mid 2000s hmm. where um you know the u.s economy was doing well enough at the time there was this sort of surplus of cheap credit um that it was harder for the military to fill uh, recruitment seats. Plus, I mean, they were, you know, the war in Af Afghanistan was somewhat on the back burner, but people were still deploying there. The war in Iraq was at an absolute just bloodbath, you know, meat grinder. Um, so it was challenging for recruiters to, to get people who were willing to join. And so, um, you know, if you didn't have a, a what we call a GED, which is sort of the equivalent of your GCSEs here, 
um, you you couldn't uh, you couldn't join, but recruiters would find like a, a GED mill that would just grant you one, you know, give you a fake one, and that that would be enough. And if you if you were were on drugs, you know, they would like help you basically like give you coaching of like how to like get clean what vitamins to take that kind of thing to like you know get you to the point where you can pass a drug test um you know if you had you could apply for a waiver for certain felonies um some of them like violent felonies or drug trafficking they typically didn't give waivers for but i think some people did um get them and then like minor drug ones they kind of looked away um and you know so there was just a lot of on one hand um that might give some degree of perspective on how policed and criminalized working class life is in America, that it's very easy to have a criminal record by the time that you're 18 um, for doing the same kind of thing that anyone, any other young Americans do. Um, mm. It's it, it just, it's much easier to have a record that would then prevent you from getting a job. Um, but back in those days, I think that the biggest thing to me, what seems to me the most pernicious was the sheer volume of people um who probably emotionally uh and mentally were not fit for military service not that like they were mentally impaired but that like they were not they weren't like they, they weren't like all together as people like they were like emotionally challenged like they were they didn't respond well under stress they didn't do well in situations like they, they couldn't be relied upon to do basic things uh and you would you would wind up with a lot of these soldiers and they were just problems and so that was the story for a lot of sort of career people in the military was going over deploying to combat zones that were incredibly dangerous with, with soldiers who were very, very troubled. Um, mm. And I mean, like if you remember in, in Cherry, when he talks about going to the recruiting, the recruiting post and like, you know, describing he wants to be a medic. I think he wanted to be a 91 whiskey, which I don't remember what that occupational specialty is, but um, I mean, he, he didn't qualify for it um, because he was colorblind. Um, but like he was, he was like the first person who was like a fallen. He was one of the the, the few people who wanted a, an ostensibly combat occupational specialty to walk in the doors, like in the whole month, or at least that's what they told him. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's just very, uh, what he experienced was um, he, he definitely enlisted during the absolute low point um, because by, by 08, uh, in, 06, in 06, 07, the economy started to, to, to get worse. And then after the crash in 08, like lots of people were joining the military because it was just so hard to get a job. Mm, yeah. And he does, towards the end, when he's out of the military, um, mention the crash. And in the BuzzFeed article, he, he talks about how what was happening with the banks at the time was a like a trigger for him starting to rob banks. You know, he, he sounds kind of pissed off at them. In a way that doesn't come up in the book very much. Yeah, he doesn't all, really talk think. about that much in the book at all, does he? But, uh, but no. yeah, I mean, um, well, I mean, I think in a sense, like when you read about one of the things that really interested me about that um, in the book specifically is that he he talks about how in America, if you're a drug addict and you're a student, it's very easy to get cheap credit for student loans. And so mm. he was able to take out student loans, apply for Pell Grants, get money. But then also because he had the GI Bill, because he was an honorably discharged soldier, um, he was able to uh, basically get this money and then get reimbursed um, and thereby have all this access to this money in his account because of, of he was and he knew he was accruing student loan debt, but it didn't matter because it was his money for drugs. And, you know, he and his girlfriend got to the point where they were spending a thousand dollars a week on heroin. Um, so in a way, one of the things that was feeding his habit beyond the fact that in America, it's very easy to get to get uh, opiates if you have 
even just a little bit of money, but also, um, and there's a huge opiate addiction problem. It's, a, it's an absolute epidemic, but also there's a huge student loan debt problem. And like him accruing that much debt to get money, you know, ostensibly for school is not abnormal in America. Yeah. And so, um, I don't know, like this book is, is it's matter of fact about the sort of like shitness of American kind of rust belt life. It's matter of fact about the military and it's matter of fact about drug addiction and in his case, crime, but like not even like a life of high crime, just like petty crime. Like, like they go about robbing banks in the same way that they might go about like stealing beer out of someone's garage. You know, like yeah, it's, it's not um, really, it's not really like, like, like high stakes caper. It's not like heat. It's just very, very, yeah. it's kind of like petty day to day crime. Yeah. It, the, the crimes he describes are, some of them are even comical, where he runs into a bank thinking he's going to be fucking reservoir dogs and he finds out the guy he was supposed to be robbing the bank with is in the car crying. So yeah. He just has to walk <laughs> out of the bank. It's, um, yeah, the amount of money you can make, uh, like you're saying, with the, combination of student loans and heroin and he he also grows weed in his basement yeah 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 that's a staggering amount of money well yeah uh... and and it's just what 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 got me about this is i mean to kind of go on a tangent about this book and why why i enjoyed it and i didn't expect to enjoy it um from the premise was you know i i'm aware of the fact that there's absolutely a um a kind of carbon copy figure there's there's an archetype of the da- the dis- disabled the damaged veteran you know the mm-hmm. veteran who yeah. who like like icarus has flown too close to the sun he's just seen too much and thereby is damaged and i say he because invariably it's a white dude is the story that's how they en- envision it and mm-hmm. it lends itself to this kind of literature that's been panned or critiqued in the u.s as being called sort of like shoot and cry it's like <laughs> i go to combat there's hodge we got to shoot people there was combat then i came home and i'm like wow that was fucked up we killed some people and i'm sad and i cry about it and everything is bleak and while this book is sort of that way, I mean, don't get me wrong, that's that's absolutely what it is. It doesn't try to make it anything more than it is in the sense that, like, there are some very tight prose, there's some very kind of um, observant lines, but it absolutely is not overwritten. In some ways, it might even be underwritten because it's just sort of like X happened, then Y happened, then Z happened. Mm, but, yeah. but when you combine that with, I mean, there's, 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 there's a kind of sparseness to it Plus the fact that it's absolutely a, um, this is, this is clearly a lived in experience. You know what I mean? Like this is clearly someone writing about an experience that even if the details are fudged to some extent, it absolutely has bearing to the truth. It's not a situation like where someone might have been in the military or might have been, uh, you know, proximate to the military in some way, but then decides they want to write a story about something they don't really know about. And I mean, Mm. um, I, I did not like Kevin Powers as Yellow Birds. And I think one of the reasons why I didn't like it was because Kevin Powers was an engineer and decided to write a book about Iraq. And he decided that he needed his, his heroes to be infantrymen. He wasn't an infantryman. And so he wrote this story based on what he thought infantrymen were doing in Iraq. But the, there wasn't really much story to it. It was just like a lot of evocative landscapes and then sad things happened and people die. Um, but it was basically, it was sort of like a... Um, like if you took a, a a bunch of cliches of like a Vietnam War story and put them in the photocopier too many times, you basically came up with a plot to that and just happened to be set in Iraq. Mm-hmm. Um, but he had an MFA in poetry and he obviously had a gift for you know imagery and evocative language. And yeah, so I remember it being beautifully written. Yeah, quite quite beautifully. I read it years quite, ago when it came out, but it was absolutely gorgeously written. Um, yeah, but but it was just it was very. Um, 
it, it was very dressed up, very picturesque, but entirely devoid, in my opinion, of, of uh, any kind of substance where I could be like, I feel as though I understand what this person, what this, what, what this person lived through, what this is supposed to represent. And in this case, like it doesn't have, in a way, Nico Walker, by writing by about his own experience, even if it's fictionalized, he doesn't have to invent things that will immediately register in the reader's mind as, you know, oh, this is the this, the damaged veteran. Like, he, you know, he doesn't have to invent like I only live in the in the hills because I can't stand to see open prairie and, and and the sky, or like I live in an abandoned factory where no one goes because I'm just say I'm a damaged veteran. Um, he he he's in prison. I mean, he's writing from prison, and like the the way the story is written, from the way it's framed in the beginning, you know, from that prologue that he's going to prison. Um, also, if you paid any attention to like the the, the 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 hype in the background behind the story, then you know, like, okay, he's, he clearly doesn't get away with all of it. Um, mm, yeah. And so, in a way, he, he's almost at liberty to describe the events as they take place because there's a kind of tension building in that you you sort of know what's going to happen. Whereas if this was just if he was writing about an experience that, that was completely fictionalized and you didn't have that kind of prelude to it, um, then you would just, I don't know, you, you'd be like, okay, what's going to happen? What's going to be this moment where I, where the reason why I'm reading this story comes, you know, comes to fruition. What, what, when am I going to know why I should care? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, in a sense, like, you, I don't know, you kind of don't have to because it's, it's, it's kind of, um, you know, it's a memoir rendered in fiction. And yeah, it, it's very, very close to his, from what I can tell, to his lived experience. It's yeah. not, uh, it's autofiction, basically. It's, that's, I mean, he, Tyrant Books, the guys who discovered him and who eventually sold the story to a bigger publisher, Knopf, um, they're, they're alt-lit guys. They're the um, you know, 19-year-olds doing a load of coke in Brooklyn and writing about who they fucked. And um, that's, that's their thing. And I've, I've talked about alt lit on this show before, and um, it it had its it had its like important parts. It had its utterly abysmal and ended up being very misogynistic and rapey parts. Yeah, and uh, but it does for a story like this, it, it it's kind of perfect. Yeah, well, it, it's a terrible way to write about being young and white and privileged in Brooklyn, but that like relentless um, all about me laser focused on the on the truth and um very spare prose uh there's hardly any commas in this book it's it's so tight you know yeah well i mean it, so, so something that i would point out for it. is that uh so the other tyrant books uh, volume that i've read with regard to the war is um atticus lish's preparation for the next life which i didn't really enjoy because after a while it just seemed as though you were having your face rubbed in horror and as far as I'm aware, Atticus Lish was briefly in the military, but I don't think he ever deployed to Iraq. Um, and the, the character he created was just like irredeemably horrible and is horrible, happens to be dating a woman who's a, a, an undocumented immigrant from Western China. And they have this brief romance, but like it all falls apart, crushed under like the horribleness of how of, of Queens, New York. Um, which don't get me wrong. I mean, there's bad things about Queens, but um, in a way like the violence and the vulgarity and like the, the, the hideousness of it, like it, it doesn't really lead to a point. Like it's just, you, you just find yourself kind of like it, it's, it's, it's forceful, but it's just grotesqueness without any kind of redemption. Um, and because it's done in, in third person, there isn't any, there, the, you, all you know is like 
that you're seeing these things rubbed in your face. Um, I understand why some people like it because they like intensity, but for me, like intensity with, with, I mean, in- intensity with no purpose is, I mean, that's basically like, okay, well I can burn my house down and I suppose it would look really intense, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything. Um, but, but something I point out about that though, is that, uh, where that book succeeded, where preparation for the next life succeeded, in my opinion, was, um, an, a disinterest in, taking all the time to spell things out it was written in a way where like if you got the reference you got the reference but it was done in a way that felt kind of like slice of life and i feel like nico walker does the same thing in this book like he doesn't bog down in trying to explain to you what all the acronyms mean but Mm. he does seem to at least be cautious enough to like explain certain things and then also just like not dwell in them like he uses um he uses metaphor and simile to describe the things versus like telling you exactly what like their military doctrinal terms are but in that regard, reading this, like, this is absolutely a misogynist book in the sense that, like, his just depictions of women are basically they are girls he fucked or, like, female soldiers who he wanted to fuck. And that's it. But yeah, at the same yeah. time, where he's coming from is quite indicative, in my opinion, of, like, the sort of default setting for a lot of young soldiers that, like, which is not to say that only misogynists enlist in the military, but more that, like, there's a, especially in combat arms, what we, we call combat arms, like, um, the branches of the military, uh, 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 that the the job specialties that actually do, you know, fighting is their job, like infantrymen, like like tankers, things like that. There is absolutely a misogynist culture there. And back in those days when he was in and when I was in for the bulk of the time I was in, those jobs were off limits to women. So when you were in, I was in an airborne unit, right? I, I, I was in a unit that had basically no women until uh, we got deployed and a few women were assigned to us, uh, like in jobs, like, uh, like, as medics or as uh as intelligence people like they were from a different headquarters they were they were assigned to us temporarily but if you broke down like what the jobs were for all the people in the unit those those were all job specialties that only men could be and so you can imagine what kind of attitudes that that generates especially amongst young soldiers living in barracks towards women and so Mm. like him talking about his friend who died and like when his friend's mom came to visit and like a bunch of soldiers in the barracks ran a train on her like that while I while that you can recoil at that and absolutely I mean it's just it, it, it's kind of hideous like that's not that, that didn't strike me like Kevin Powers has a whole thing where like the the the, the soldier the, the 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 virginal baby cheek soldier's mom makes his squad leader swear that she'll bring his boy home safely that's mm. complete horseshit but weird kid from Oklahoma who's a Wiccan whose mom is like 30 shows up and like lets a bunch of soldiers run a train on her that's actually probably true and i mean and that's more a statement of the fucked upness of america and of the military and of a lot of things but in a way i read this and there are things about it that ring so similar to so much other war literature that i've read about iraq and afghanistan and and specifically um you know i i can't help but but contrast it to atticus licia's book because you know i could see the same publisher I could also just see similar threads, but what I what I thought was true about this was none of this was meant to be gratuitous. None of this was like a a grand invention, from what I can tell, to, um, you know, to like, to to to, to generate atmosphere. Maybe some of it, the details were changed, but from the, the vibe that I was getting from reading this was this was more or less here's my chance to tell my story in a way where I won't um, have to forfeit all the proceeds because of laws against you know criminals making money off off. Uh, publishing publications of their crimes which actually we have in the united states oh i did not know that um 
I think it was meant against like mobsters writing like tell all books. But yeah, there's a law that basically like you can't profit off of if you go to, to, to prison and you write books about like your crimes. I think that you effectively are, are are obligated to forfeit those proceeds. But if it's fictionalized, like what he's doing, I think he can keep the proceeds. Yeah, cool. Um, okay, so we're about up to the halfway mark. So do some music now. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so we're going to come back to Cherry in just a second, but I wanted to throw some music in at, at you guys first. Uh, there's a band called Olfar. It has a kind of dorky Dungeon Dragons-y name, but bear with me. Uh, they've got an album called Cosmovore. Again, you know, standard for metal as a genre. Uh, they're made up of a bunch of uh, Bay Area scene guys who have all played in a, a huge number of other, other things. And it's... Uh, but I love this record. Uh, it's black metal with touches of death and doom stuff in it but it's done really beautifully uh the sound is just gorgeous like you know when it when it when it gets that tone that's just perfect and it's just you know you're just banging your head going yes to every beat uh they've got that thing going for them so this is uh the first track of their album it's also called cosmovore and they're on 20 bucks spin who great at record label who purely put out absolute gold they've done a ton of stuff which i've probably played on this show before so uh yeah check these guys out
Okay, that was Ulfar with Cosmophore, and that's on 20 bucks spin if you want to go get yourself a copy. I don't think it's out yet, but uh, give it a minute, I'll probably tweet about it. It's, uh, like, like you heard, it's pretty amazing. Uh, we're still here talking about Cherry with uh, Nate, and one of the, like, weirdly tiny, inconsequential details of this that I wanted a, a service person, a, a troop of veterans <laughs> opinion on, was uh, Nico Cherry is a vegetarian. I'm a vegetarian. You can probably tell by how pale and self-righteous I am. <laughs> but um, how easy is it being in like that like macho testosterone culture, being a vegetarian? Because I can't pull it off in like a media marketing agency. It makes me a freak. I imagine in like you know the kind of run a train on your friend's mum uh, culture, it's even more difficult. Is it difficult? Um, well, I mean, I really just think it's a matter of, um, I mean, logistically it can be challenging because your, your options are limited. Um, he's right that when he's in basic training that, for example, there are in our ration packages, you can, you can have, um, there is a vegetarian option. Um, when you're eating from a dining facility, there are also going to be options when you're in training out in the field, like what they bring in the field kitchen is what they bring. And so you, you often can find some stuff, but it, it, it would be a little bit more challenging. I suppose like if you were willing to like pick, be, pick the little bits of meat out of like, you know, meat and rice or something like that, then it's not that big of a deal. And in terms of like the macho culture, I mean, sure. But I think also a lot of that has to do with, uh, with demeanor, because I mean, if you, you, you come across like you're a vegetarian, but like you, you aren't necessarily ashamed of it. And, you know, you, you, people might joke with you about it, but like, you're not defensive. Then I don't necessarily think that it's anything that people would, uh, I mean, that's the kind of thing that like privates might make fun of each other for. But like, I think that once you get in a certain point, unless somebody has like a really serious, weird moral obligation against like, they, they, they have like an, a sense of outrage to the fact that you're a vegetarian. I, I don't necessarily think it would be a, a huge deal. I mean, I, I met people here and there who were, I mean, oftentimes with things like that, um, you know, it, people choose to reveal however much they want to. And, um, you know, it's entirely possible that, that someone, if they just didn't say it and then just people didn't notice, but like they were just, you know, hewing towards meat free options, they might not even know. Um, I remember reading because it's a very strange coincidence, but, um, when I was a cadet, uh, between my third and fourth year of university, um, I did a training sort of internship at a unit in California in, um, the, in the desert between Las Vegas and San Diego. And, um, they, uh, it was a full, you know, big training area. Basically it's a huge open desert and they have a base out there and the, the and regular army units deployed to this base, to, like do like a combat simulation. Um, and then there's an actual unit there and that unit had deployed, um, at one point to, to combat as well. Um, and, there was a mini scandal because one of the soldiers who I guess had gotten out at this point of the military, um, but had been in this unit before, uh, had won some award for like some websites, like world's cutest vegan. And he, uh, he had posted a photo of himself for this competition cause he was a vegan and he had gauges in his ears. Um, but the photo was obviously taken in the barracks. And so technically speaking, he was out of uniform. He wasn't even if he was off duty. And like, of course, there were people in the unit who were losing their minds. Like, what the fuck? Why are soldiers? Why are they publishing photos of soldiers like not being in uniform? And so it's in a way it's like 
you know, here's this this weird, dumb scandal that doesn't exist. But one of the things that details, the reason I bring this up is he had mentioned that being in the army, it was challenging to be a vegan. And towards the end of the time that he was in the military, he stopped trying to, to keep vegan when in training and would just bring his own food. Like he would bring his own food to the field that was vegan. So he didn't have to deal with like eating in the meal kitchen or uh, um, uh, what's it called? Um, I, I keep saying meal kitchen. It's field kitchen. Um without uh, eating in the field kitchen or like eating rations because it was just too challenging to keep vegan. So I, I think that's more like, uh, that's a roundabout answer to your question. But I think that, that anything that somebody has about them that could single them out could ostensibly get them bullied depending on the environment they're in. I mean, um, you know, I've been in units where people were like more cerebral and I've been in units where people were really jockish and it really just depends on the luck of the draw. But I mean, um, if I'm being perfectly honest, it's far easier to be any kind of um, not majority group in uh, a non-combat unit. Um, maybe that's changing now that like uh, certain things like the, 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 those those occupational specialties are open to women and, you know, gays and lesbians can serve openly. But I definitely think that, that for the time that I was in, um, like I would much rather be a vegetarian in like a quartermaster unit that does supply than like in an airborne infantry unit, just in terms of the, the general attitudes you're going to encounter. But then again, I mean, like I met dudes who were full on redneck deer hunters and I met a guy who literally every time he got enough time to go on leave would go to Ibiza and go to like raves because like he was just like really into techno. So, I mean... It, those are still kind of jockish in the grand scheme of things but in in the american view like one of those is very much not what a soldier does what an infantryman does so i do think that like especially amongst the enlisted ranks it's a big gathering of weirdos amongst the officer ranks which i was a member of it's way more um like boy scouty kind of conservative americans cool and um so we we kind of touched on this a little earlier but um, say someone uh, reads Cherry and they're, they're hooked on American war in the 21st century stories. Like, what good stuff is out there? Because, like I mentioned, I've read This and Yellow Birds and watched Jarhead, and that's about it. Oh, wow. Actually, Jarhead was Gulf Jar, War, Jarhead was it? the Gulf War, yeah. yeah. Um, they're all the same. <laughs> I mean, I definitely would recommend Jarhead. I think that... that... Uh, Tony Swafford's writing is amazing in that book. And I definitely think if there's people out there that want to read a good example of what I see as like the sort of semi-memoir or in his case, full memoir story about war, like that's a great place to start. Um, this current conflict. Um, so uh, there was a book that won the National Book Award uh, called uh, Redeployment. It's Phil Kly's book. There's one story in particular in that that I love, uh, which is called Bodies. Um it's probably not the... named after the song, of course. Yes. Yeah, yeah, of course. It's, I, I used to joke that, that it was named after the uh, the, the Smashing Pumpkins song, but uh, it's it's kind of a, um, a kind of a gothish story. It's it, there's an element of of, uh, of what's it called um, of Cherry that reminds me of it in terms of like the sort of straightforwardness. Um, there's a book that uh, that I've I haven't had a chance to read yet, but that I've heard a lot of good things about by a guy named Brian Van Reet called Spoils. Um, and the reason why I want to bring him up, even though I can't attest to the quality, is that like I always am very happy when junior enlisted soldiers get out and write books, because a lot of the fiction and nonfiction that's been written about these wars has all been by officers, typically by white male officers. And so um, they're uh, that it's better. I, I'm I'm very happy when I get an, you get the chance to read something that's written by a junior enlisted person in general, just because um, uh, it's it's a different perspective and it doesn't try to be totalizing. 
Um, I had a short story in a collection of veteran authors that was at least more diverse than than um, than you know that that your your marquee list. Um, the, the book was called The Road Ahead. It was put out by Pegasus Books in 2017, um, and there are a number of authors in there that are both uh, male, female, white, and black, enlisted, and officer. Also, there was a similar book that was put out about 10 years prior called Fire and Forget that was mostly Iraq War vets. Um, but that one has a bunch of people, some of whom who have gone on to write write novels, people like Phil Cly, Matt Gallagher, uh, Roy Scranton. Uh, Matt Gallagher wrote a novel called um, uh, Young Bloods. I'm, I, he's going to kill me for forgetting the name. That's set in Iraq. Uh, it's quite good. Um, Roy Scranton wrote a book called War Porn. That's, I, I don't know if it's good or not. I haven't read it, but it is definitely not your standard shoot and cry book from what people have told me. So that's one to check out perhaps. And um, one that I really enjoy um, that's not at, not even American um, is there's a book called The Corpse Exhibition by Hassan Blasim. He's Iraqi and uh, has lived in Finland for a long time. Um, and his short stories are all about Iraq, contemporary Iraq, post, post-invasion Iraq. And holy fuck, they're intense. And I have really, really enjoyed them. There's a little bit of a, a I, I want to say a sort of storytelling difference because they're all translated from Arabic. Um where the stories have a tendency to kind of end on a like s- surprise note, like weird freak out ending, like um, if, if, surprise that you didn't see coming. But mm-hmm. in terms of just like the general feel, I, I, I have found those to be like just one of the best, th- like one of the best things that I've read about the war in general. And like, and I'm very happy that it's an author that's Iraqi as opposed to um, having the entirety of this perspective come from soldiers who fought in a war and who have, have opinions and perspectives, but their their perspective on what it must have been like to be an Iraqi is is obviously super limited and oftentimes I mean for better or worse can be very dismissive. Yeah, there was a, a book I was I was gonna do it on the show, but then for some reason I I never got around to finishing it called uh, Frankenstein in Baghdad by says here uh, Ahmed uh, Sadawi. Yeah, I haven't heard of it. It's uh, but it's literally the title is the story. It's Frankenstein in Baghdad. I, I was a I only got about 30, 40 pages in. It was about a guy, an Iraqi guy, who would pick up like the bits of dead bodies, sew them back together so they could be given a proper burial, even though it was like a bunch of different people's bodies oh, wow. all stuck together. And then one of his uh, bodies that stuck together gets up and runs around killing people. That's um, insane. So it's got a bit of a supernatural element to it, so it's probably not like the most gritty realism, but uh, apparently it's very good, and the bits I read were very, very good. Uh, but uh, maybe one to check out, and, and it recommends the corpse exhibition as another one if you if you like that one. So it's they're probably uh, yeah, and, and I I, th- I think that to be honest with you, there's going to be more literature as time goes on. But I think one of the things that's that's been there's two things that kind of work against um, authors uh, who or veteran authors, and and I mean, and I think. You know, you and I talked about this on DMs beforehand. I think Nico Walker was able to tell his story in a much less adorned and like MFA approved style because of his background, because like here he is writing from prison in a typewriter, you know, like it, as opposed to if he were a veteran who got out and was trying to sell his story, like trying to sell a book, like um, the, the the urge to MFA eyes things to to, mm. to, 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 get, yeah. to to focus specifically on like the sonority of sentences and like the, 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 the artifice around it, building, you know, turning every story into a Fabergé egg um, can take away from what it is that is, you know, the, the, the story that the person is trying to tell. And so 
I think that there's one of the big problems is that for one, I mean, there's certain trends, very patrician trends in literature that make it very challenging for someone who doesn't, isn't of that class and that background to publish, to publish work without doing a lot of graduate study. Um, but also I think that publishing, the publishing industry has a tendency to look at any kind of literature um, that's not, you know, capital L literature as like, well, we'll throw them a few bones every now and again. And whether that's publishing authors who are not white, who are, uh, who are not Christian, who are, um, you know, in translation from other languages, whether it's, or books that are set, you know, amongst working class people, books that are set in foreign countries, there's a tendency, like once there's one, there doesn't need to be another. That's sort of the view in the market. Mm. And so with, with, with veteran stories, I think one of the challenges you face is that, um, well, the yellow bird sold and did very well. And so, um, what's the point of having another veteran book? Like we just don't, we don't want to, that, that, that market's already been trod upon, you know what I mean? And so fighting for market share is a challenge for writers in general. And, um, and so something that, that to me that I hope is that, uh, in time, I mean, the Vietnam war eventually ended. I, I hope to God that the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan eventually end and that there'll be the ability to have some perspective on it that, and, and, and the desire on the parts of civilians to, to, and other people to read it in, in retrospective. And also I hope that in time that, you know, that, that, I mean, what Nico Walker did does, does the like infantry grunt, grunt's eye view quite well. Granted he was a medic, mm -hmm. but like I, I, some of my, so two of my very close friends from the army were enlisted medics. And so reading this, I was like, I would not feel weird giving them this book and being like, read this, you'll love it because I think they absolutely would. Um, but I'm, I, I hope that we in time read more um, books about, this conflict that can see it from a different, from a, from a variety of perspectives. And also that like, I don't know that, that I also really hope to see uh, authors who are from these countries writing fiction, um, which I'm sure they are. And I'm sure they're being ignored by, by, by publishers. I like to see that published because I think that, I don't know, to some extent Americans and people in the West probably need to read stories from those points of view and understand like, yeah, it's sad that, you know, our, veterans went uh, went abroad and came back and now like they're fucked up from it but like imagine what it's like if you have to live there you know and it's easy for me to say that now but i mean i guess i just um the reason why i i recommended hassan blasim was that like for me for example i'm very curious about the iraq war because i never went there um but reading about uh about iraq from iraqi from an iraqi's perspective um made me very um a little bit more circumspect in sort of like uh, the way that I would like approach storytelling when it comes to this kind of subject matter, if that makes any sense. Mm. Yeah, I, no, I, I totally understand. Um, yeah, it, it's, yeah, it must be an incredibly difficult thing to write about. Um, and, I mean, yeah, it's, I, I, I mean, to some extent, it's really easy to write about it. It's just really hard to write about it in a way that's not just the same thing over and over again. Because, I mean, that's the, really the, the, the story is, you know, you get deployed and, like, there's a lot of repetition. There's a lot of the same thing over and over again. Or, um, you know, stories that, that – another thing, too, I think that, that veteran authors, that at least I've struggled with and that I, I, would, I would assume from, you know, speaking with other veterans they also struggle with, is that how do you tell a story out of something and also have it be true? Because what you experienced in truth was a lot of boring, repetition, mundane garbage. And some of it isn't important, but it's important to you because it's your life. How do you take mm. your life and make it into a story that people want to read and not just, you know, rub their faces in horror? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like make it an interesting story. And I mean, Cherry for, for all the things, it's got some, some serious fucking flaws for sure. Um, but it's very raw and it's very honest. And it's also a really interesting story. 
Like it is, yeah. Especially in the mm-hmm. in the in the spiraling out of control with drug addiction parts towards the end, because you know it's coming, you know it's going to happen. But every single time he gets in the car and he gets out to go do a robbery, you don't know if it's going to be that one or the next one. You know, mm-hmm. and so yeah, in a way, there's out, like there's yeah, like this te- no one. Yeah, there's there's exactly, and there's just this tension. Um, and uh, and so in a way, like I think that's that's the thing that that I really why I would recommend this book and perhaps recommend it over some of the other ones that I've seen before, um, is that it manages to be authentic to the experience, but then also be an interesting story that like, isn't just read this. You ought to, because you're an American and you ought to know, you know what I mean? Or you're, you're British because the Brits deployed, you know, forces to Iraq and Afghanistan too. Uh, does that make sense? Like it's not, oh, yeah. not reading this book because it's a, some weird patriotic obligation. It's reading this book because it's an interesting story. Mm, yeah. It's not American sniper uh, yeah. or zero dark 30. <laughs> thank, um, thank God. But uh, yeah, it was um, one of the things that I, because the war bit is about maybe one third of the book, maybe even a quarter. And the bulk of it is the drug bit. And um, when you said about the repetition of war, I, the, the um, drug parts towards the end are very repetitious. Very There's so, yeah. probably about um, a 50-page streak where it's just, I got up, I was sick, I went out of the drug deal, I yeah. used up all the drugs, I sold some coke, a guy ripped me off. I got some more drugs, I shot them up, I got sick. And it's constant, and there's uh, very little, there's no arc to it, it's just all the way through on this, like, white noise of just heroin, sick, ripped off, drug deal, sold dope. It just keeps going like that. And, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's obviously a a parallel to, to war, you know, you having this incredibly repetitious often very boring thing happen and then awful soul-rending horror yeah and um it i never found that i was getting sick of it you know i was never uh, in a lot of the same way of the war parts i was there going okay yeah he's getting some more dope awesome and the uh, funny thing for me was i was wondering as i was reading this like is he gonna do something and fuck up and get kicked out of the military um you know that's i was like I, I paused because I read this book very quickly and I was surprised how quickly I, I was able to read it. Like I, I really couldn't put it down. Um, but I took a break basically halfway through and, um, you know, like I think it was, uh, and then read it the next day. And I was wondering like, is he going to make it through this deployment without fucking up? Is he going to do something where he screws up and like gets kicked out of the army when he comes back? Because that's, that's pretty common. You know, things will happen where a soldier will get in trouble or is he going to get hurt and is getting hurt cause him to like start getting addicted to opiates because i've had soldiers who had that happen to them they got hurt and you know got hooked on opiates they hadn't taken before and then you know like they'd never taken drugs before but then they got out of the military and they were dope addicts you know and it's like and there's not much out there for them to help them um one guy in particular it's a really sad story he was a really really good nco uh he was a, a staff sergeant and he had been through a whole deployment in iraq before but he got hit with a he basically had an rpg go off very close to him and it, you know, broke a couple of his ribs, broke both his arms, knocked out some of his teeth, and he wound up getting addicted to opiates. And by the time that he got out of the, he basically got got kicked out of the army for drug abuse because he was both using and dealing drugs at a massive amount. Once he got back, you know, to Alaska where we were stationed, um, and like the army sent him to some kind of rehab, but I'm sure it was only like 30 days, and then who knows what happened next. And it's like here's this guy that was, you know, a very promising non-commissioned officer. And now I don't know what the fuck he's doing, but he entirely likely that he's living a life much like this book. And, mm. you know, that stuck with me quite a bit when I when I when I thought about it, like this experience isn't all that rarefied. And if you subtract the the military experience, 
it's basically what's going on with tens of thousands of people every day in America right now. Yeah, I read a review, I think uh, Vulture it was, and uh, they, they basically said this is the first great opioid epidemic novel. Not this is another great Iraq novel, this is a opium epidemic novel that just happens to have one quarter set in Iraq. Yeah, and, I mean... Um, yeah, I can see that. It's, um, I mean, his, from what I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong as an American, um, but a lot of the opium uh, epidemic in the US, in the Midwest at least, is older people who who went through kind of a similar thing to this NCO, where they, they'll get injured, they get prescribed opiates, they get prescribed way too much, they end up on it for too long, and then when their prescription runs out, they go to heroin at some trap house to to you know, fulfill the need they have, mm. which is, I guess, a, a little different from what Nico Walker has because his is like psychological wounds. He's got terrible PTSD. Yeah, is that like a accurate summation of opioid stuff in, in the well, US right I, now? I think it's yes to some extent. I think it's a little bit more complicated though, in the sense that you know I'm I'm from the Midwest. I'm from Indiana, and um, where I'm from uh, is it, it has not been hit as hard, but where my parents now live has actually been hit very, very hard. Um, and some of it is what you described. It's people in, you know, in, in occupational specialties in jobs, et cetera, on the outside that are get hurt and they get it for chronic pain. Um, some of it is our total lack of medical care as an infrastructure sort of thing in America where, um, you know, you if you have shitty insurance or you have Medicaid because you're below a certain income threshold, they might not pay for physical therapy to fix your back problems, but they will pay for pills. Mm. Um, in many parts of the country for a long time, there were these things called pill mills where basically you, there were pain clinics. And you'd go in and be like, hi, I have pain. And they would just write you a prescription for opiates. And it was very easy to get pills. And, you know, a friend of mine was a medic also. Not only does does this story remind me of him, but he also was deployed twice from Fort Hood. So uh, he was with, he might very well have been in the same experience that what Nico Walker was describing in this book. And one of the points he made was that if you go to these pain clinics in Florida, you know, they'll give you a prescription for, if you include the refills, up to about 160 pills. And like wow. the, the doctors know that they're creating an addict when they do that, but they do it in any way. And then as they've tightened up these laws that allow, you know, they, they've, they've clamped down on these, uh, these sorts of institutions, um, making it a little bit harder to get pills. It's much easier to get heroin than it is to get pills, which for better or worse, if they're unadulterated, at least are like, you know, you know how much you're getting and how much you're taking. Hmm. Um, and also pills, the street value of pills is very, very high compared to heroin. I mean, it's, it's, you know, like multiple, I don't, I don't want to sound like I know more than I am talking about here in terms of street value and price, but I, what I've heard, you know, pills cost 20, $30, if not more per pill, whereas the equivalent dosage in terms of a hit of heroin is like five, six, seven dollars. Um, so it's just much cheaper to be, to be using heroin than it is to be using prescription opiates. Um, so it's a it's a it's a, a, a huge problem um, that has gotten so much worse. I mean, as I understand it, um, even though obviously the population has grown, when there was a supposed heroin epidemic in the cities of the United States in the late 70s, in the worst year in terms of drug deaths from heroin overdoses, I think there was something like 2,500 or 3,000 heroin deaths in America. And now our population is much bigger now, but when you factor in that in 2017, I think it was like 50,000 people died from opiates specifically, and about 70,000 died from drug overdoses in some capacity. Um, 
it's just such a massive amount. I mean, even here in Britain, um, you know, if you adjust for population, Britain, which has a higher opiate death rate, I believe, than a lot of countries in Western Europe, um, Britain has like adjusted for population like one fifth of America's opiate death rate. So it really is truly an epidemic. It really is killing people. You know, I mean, my parents live very close to, they live in uh, Southern Indiana. Um, They live about two counties away from the county where there was this massive HIV epidemic that was brought on by people sharing needles for opiate addiction. Um, And then also a couple of, one state away, but not too far geographically from where my parents live in Dayton, Ohio, there's a county that has, I think the highest opiate death rate per 100,000 people of anywhere in America. So what Nico Walker's describing growing up in Ohio is basically living in the sort of ground zero for this stuff, like um, ground zero for deindustrialization, ground zero for the sort of like rust belt experience where like jobs are shit and there's like not really a future. And then also ground zero for just a massive amount of cheap opiates. Yeah, he's a... Yeah, life did not serve him a very nice hand there, I think. No, but it's, uh, um, it's like I said, it's it's a crazy story. And uh, I mean, there's things that I, I could, I, I would guess I would put it as, as a warning in this. Like, I could very much see someone, eat, for all the accolades, might read this book and be like, you know what? I understand why people like it. It's not for me. And that's totally okay. Um, because there were things about this book that I was just like, all right, like you said, it's repetitive. Um, it's very... It's just it's just a certain a single person's experience without a lot of introspection in a lot of cases. Mm. Um, it's very dismissive of I mean the the way it described the way it describes his views on Iraqi people is very similar to like what I experienced amongst enlisted soldiers. But uh, it's not not necessarily gonna gonna warm your heart. But mm. I do yeah. th- I, I I do think that it it's got something going for it in terms of like the authenticity of the experience and like to me the grimness of the 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 addiction and the grimness of Iraq like. It, it painted a very, very difficult picture. Yeah, I mean, another flaw with it, um, which you mentioned before, is women aren't partic- t- t- treated particularly well in this. And you know, that's, as you said, a function of being an infantryman and of being a drug addict, because it's not exactly a particularly um, female-friendly world either. And just the, the other characters are just kind of, apart from him and his girlfriend or end-up wife, um, they're not really much going on with the other characters they don't have rehab arcs they're more um uh, they're more just tools for the main guy to be um around yeah there's women around because of personalities really yeah yeah not at all no and, and i mean um in a way it's weird because like this is I think you can get into like a a huge argument, you know, in sort of doctrinal terms about whether or not this counts as a novel. And I mean, I think that in the purest sense, it absolutely does. But like, uh, because it's a novel written in first person and written in a way that doesn't really doesn't really care about the sort of, I mean, you can you can pat it, you can give it a, as a positive and say, well, it doesn't care about the niceties of like novel structure. It just cares about the story. Or you could say it's just not that fleshed out. But it's very obvious that like the women that he interacts with, both in the military and outside, are are very very one dimensional because they just are people he's fucking at some point or doing drugs with, and that's mm. it, you know. And it's like some of those lead lend themselves to very poignant details about sort of like what people are experiencing, like what it's like living in this world that they're in. But I don't know. I mean, there's the part of me that like. You know, one of my good friends was on a plane and like a 19 year old girl overdosed because she was 
doing drinking like vodka and doing Vicodin with her mom. And like she basically she didn't die, but she had to be like, m- you know, medically evacuated from the plane. Um, and so like knows like there's people living those lives like that are not too far from like where I'm from. But another part of me that like sort of the, you know, MFA student side of me, the person who who like scrutinized this stuff, it said, yes, but if you lot, you could lose the detail, for example, about like the single mother in his class who like wants to do heroin with him and then like gives him a blowjob. Like that's not important to the plot at all. It's just so. it's it's just sort of like like sex trophies, basically. And that mm. to me, like that's that 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 definitely lends itself to like a sort of very that th- th- it, like this is going to um it plays into a sort of like male ego sensibility about this kind of storytelling, but I don't necessarily like that's not its strong suit mm. no I mean it is part of like a tradition of storytelling that has like i mean obviously Bukowski. You know, the oh yeah, for sure. Great bugbear of American literature. People, Hubert Selby Jr., and um, even people still writing like uh, Scott McClanahan, who's also on Tyrant Books, and I think Nika Walker mentions having read in prison uh, his last book. Um, I forget what it's called, even though I reviewed it on the show, and it's really good. But it, it's got the same problem. It's a, a alcohol book instead of a drug book, and all the women are just. Uh, holes that kind of walk around interact with the narrator then go off to do something else it's uh and none of the other characters apart from the narrator are really are really there yeah it's, um it's it's a it's almost a genre at this point uh this kind of guidebook that's uh very male and very centered on the guy i mean i was gonna make a joke though i'm like oh you could also be talking about james salter too while you're at it because well well, he's a little bit more poetic in his descriptions like i've read i i mean james salter is an mfa favorite of course in the united states and like james salter is also a korean war vet and so um i have tried to, to suffer through a sport in a pastime so many times and i can't get through it and it's just like it's one of those things where um it really is i don't know like it's playing into an expectation into a kind of an ego thing of like, well, I'm telling this story. So I'm going to tell everything in brutal detail. And like, if I'm going to tell the story about like, well, I saw the Bradley armored fighting vehicle blown up and like the you know black and disgusting bodies of these people that have been burned to a crisp, which he definitely talks about, or like the difficulty mm. of, of extricating bodies and putting them in body bags when like, they're still hot. Like you can't pick them up with gloves. Like all these just gross things happening, like the horrible smell, like, he describes yeah, this in, bits of people's fat like rolling like, off and he has yeah, to like, yeah, like roll them up and throw them in a sewer. Or yeah, something. yeah, just like 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 yeah, it's 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 hideous. And so as a result of that, it's like, but then also, you know, it treats uh, basically every other every encounter with women that leads to sex is like a similar thing that has to just be be put forth in a in a very almost clinical way. And it's like, um, I mean, a point. There's a point to which I say, okay, yes, if you if you give every detail of your life, you know, equal weight, then, um, then this is the kind of thing you end up with. And so I, I'm not saying this, that it's, that it weighs the book down massively, but it's definitely there. It's definitely, um, to, to use a sort of online leftist trope, this book is basically a hot couch guy who goes to war. <laughs> like, and okay. Like, yep. Perfect. <laughs> Episode <so>, title. <laughs> and so, uh, I mean, really when you get down to it that's that's what it is and you think about mm. all those attitudes towards like drinking and drugs and sex and then also the iraq war um that's what you get and but at the same time i i found this book to be engaging i thought it was unadorned in a way that i appreciated 
and um, it didn't try to be anything other than what it is, and that's that. That I think is a strong suit. Yeah, I mean, it, it was the apart from its many uh, flaws, it it really does work, and that unfortunately that's the same with Scott McClanahan and probably a lot of like post alt lit guys. It's uh, it works. You know, it's it's a it's really good entertainment, and it's a really good piece of art too. It's probably the same with Bukowski. I haven't read him for the last literally twenty <laughs> years, but um, he's. If I I I worried that I'll go back and read him his like women or post post office or whatever, and I'll find it's really good, and I'll tell someone, and then I'll get cancelled because it's not <laughs> Bukowski anymore. And, well, also because Bukowski, a lot of people who like Bukowski like him for the wrong suck. reasons. Yeah. yeah, they suck as people. And so everybody like you I, I've read women and I enjoyed it for what it was worth. Uh, I've read post Cancelled. office. Yeah, exactly. But I also recognize that when somebody says that Charles Bukowski is their favorite writer, that something bad is gonna happen. Oh it, yeah. Like that's red light. That's <laughs> uh, nothing good comes of liking Bukowski. But maybe he's a great writer. It's, well I mean it's it's one of those things where it's like um I, I've made this joke on our show before that uh, that that I don't think there's anything wrong with Chuck Palahniuk's Flight Fight Club. I don't think I mean it, it's a, it's a decent book. It was an interesting concept. I thought the movie for what it was worth was was well executed. But I think that even Chuck Palahniuk, his bank account notwithstanding, might agree that the world would be better if it had never existed. Just because oh, yeah. because then you wouldn't yeah. have. Uh, the people who watched Fight Club and thought, "Oh, this is cool! I should be Tyler Durden." Um, it just—it's one of those things where sometimes a, a work of art, for what it's worth, can can um, cause ripples throughout time and space that then lead to a lot of people making it into like an integral part of their terrible personality. Um, mm. But same with uh, Wolf of Wall Street or Scarface. Oh. <laughs> or, <laughs> yes, um, things that we definitely don't uh, talk about on, uh, on our show. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah I, like uh every terrible guy on wall street loves to film wall street well yeah it's a cool it's, it's a, a movie about a cool guy with a cool job who you know does is, business yeah. things and he's good at it and uh same with wolf of and every drug dealer i've ever met well i haven't met a drug dealers obviously but uh, every drug dealer i've ever met loves scarface the film about a terrible drug dealer who fucks up his life and it ended up being horribly <laughs> miserable face down in a pool of blow yeah, well, and I mean, no friends, but um, but he does have a really sweet house and shoot a lot of guns. So I mean, he uh, does, and, yeah. and yell at people yes. a lot. Yeah, he's he's a cool guy, good good mindset on Tony Montana. <laughs> but uh, so, come to the end of the episode. Although you know it's literature, you can't like give it a ten out of ten review. But I'd say this is worth someone's time. I you know, agree. I, yeah, I would say it's. And, you know, they're going to make a film out of it. That's already been arranged. I don't, I don't know which production company they're going to do it, but they, so it's been arranged uh, on prison phone with Nico Walker. And um, the film, I imagine, is going to be terrible. They actually made it... I, I don't know if you've ever seen... that. They've actually made a film of Yellow Birds. Oh, came no, out, really? came out last year. Starred uh, Alden Ehrenreich, um, Han Solo, and uh, Jennifer Aniston. Oh, no. Okay, also known as Rachel from Friends. So, um, yeah, it clearly made a splash. <laughs> We're all, like, obviously quoting lines from that uh, famous film we've seen. It's not even on Netflix. Yeah, I mean, um, they also made a film out of... Ang Lee made a film out of um, 
Billy Lynn's Hulk? long halftime walk, uh, uh, which Hulk. is which is um, which is not uh, the guy who wrote it is not an Iraq vet, but it's actually it had elements of it that were quite well done. Like he clearly had done his homework. Um, but I heard the movie sucked, and it, like it's not the book is really sardonic, and I guess the book the movie is is not so. Um, yeah, I saw trailers for that. It looked like I mean, it looked like an American halftime show, which is like creep both sentimental and fascistic at the same time <laughs> yeah yeah well um i mean i would definitely say that the cherry is something that i've is a book that i've enjoyed i don't think it's a huge investment in time to read it i think that it's definitely worth worth giving a shot and i mean and my argument is that you'll probably know very quickly into the book if it's for you or not and that's okay and like my big stance on books has always been like it's okay to not like a book and like it's okay to stop reading a book and just put it down um my uh, i loved um uh what is it uh oh man this is this is I, i've forgotten it before oh, um norwegian wood by haruki murakami mm. i really enjoyed but then i've tried to read many of his other great works and i found like wow he's already going into the weird sex parts and it's only like 10 pages in um i can't i just can't finish them and it's like sometimes someone might be a famous author and someone might be highly praised but if it's not for you it's not for you i do think that if you're going to give one of these sort of shoot and cry books a, 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 a try, and I say that full well knowing that any of my work might also be described as shoot and cry, um, I definitely think give, give this a shot and, um, and see what you think because uh, if you don't like it, you don't like it. But I think if nothing else, um, I can say that from my perspective of, 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 of sort of living in a similar universe to some of these, kind of these people, um, both in sense of where I'm from and also what I, what I did in the military, I think that it, it definitely sticks very close to the reality of the subject matter. And and for that, I think um, it deserves, deserves at least, you know, a curious look. Cool. So press F to pay respects to this book. <laughs> I should go on the cover. Um, but cool. So yeah, Cherry, Nico Walker, it's on NOP. Not that it actually matters what uh, publisher it's on because, you know, they're all sold in the same shops. Go buy it at an independent bookstore, not Amazon. And uh, to play us out, I got a, a song that I, I've been meaning to, to rep this particular compilation for a while now. Um, Woman, as in the Worldwide Organization of Metalheads Against Nazis, is a project by a guy named Richard out of London. He'd, he's in a lot of music projects, and we've played a few on the show before. It's a compilation of 44 different artists. Half of them have I've played on the show because there's a pretty small number of bands that aren't Nazis. And uh, there'll be people like Neckbeard Death Camp and Red Bait and um, All Father and just good good folk, good people. And uh, one of the bands I haven't heard of before is called Grimorium Verum. So Latin people DM me what that actually is. Um, they're a black metal outfit. This is a song called Mirages of Imminent Mortality because, you know, it's black metal and it's got to have like 80 syllables in order to be in the genre. Um, and it's really a really good song. And if you buy the album, then all the proceeds go to Doctors Without Borders. So you'd be doing yourself and the world a favor by listening to this record. Um, next week, we've got the new Jonathan Lethem. Uh, we're going to see if he's still good. I, I quite dig Jonathan Lethem. I know he's like one of those literary Jonathans uh, that um, there's a lot of bad ones. <laughs> yes. And um, he's the one third of literary Jonathans that's that I'm into. So, and Marvelous Brooklyn was absolutely brilliant. I would and say that, that this, he, he is the absolute 
keeper of the ring when it comes to encouraging people to read Philip K. Dick. So even though I haven't been oh, a yeah. huge fan of his work, I still respect the shit out of him for that because uh, he helped curate the Library of America volumes of all of Philip K. Dick's novels. And that's an amazing thing that he did, like, because that really, Philip K. Dick was kind of languishing in a lot of ways in terms of, like, not being taken seriously in literature in America. So respect to Jonathan, the good literary Jonathan. Yeah, he's the good Jonathan. And we're going to read his new one, and it's hopefully good. And uh, we're also going to be reading probably the week after, or maybe a week after that, um, the new Haruki Murakami as well because he's got a new giant 700-page book about magical realism in Japan, you know, really pushing his limits there as a imaginative force. I, I wonder if there's going to uh, be a weirdly recalled scene in which somebody has uncomfortable lesbian sex when they're a teenager, because that never happens in his books. No, I, I can't imagine it would be, or some uh, Japanese mythology thrown in and just some general weirdness that you some cats. never really get to explain. Some cats, cats and some yeah. trains, it has to happen. Yeah, did not like the cat's uh, dissection scene in Kafka on the Shore, by the way. That was not cool. You don't do that to cats in books. <laughs> but um, yeah, it, it's probably going to be brilliant and maybe one day he'll get a Nobel Prize. So look out for that and uh, definitely um, go and listen to Hell of a Way to Die and Trash Future. Couldn't be more different in terms of content, but um, both excellent. Thank you. Um, and uh, yeah, check out Nate on Twitter. He's on there as well. What's your handle again? It's at it's... In These Deserts. And I knew I was going to say that. I thought it would have been the other guy. No. But, well, uh, so, so, and it's a long story, but if you're interested, I can link to it. Uh, we can maybe, you can link, I can uh, put it out there. I used to write for McSweeney's years ago about my experience in Afghanistan. And so I had a series of columns um, from that. So that's out there. And, uh, and one of, one of my, weirdly enough, at one point, the Daily Beast was publishing fiction. So I had a story that was written about somebody's experience in Iraq. Uh, that was published too so can can link to that if you're interested in reading yeah do it that'll be in the show notes people at home and i'll probably uh, try and tweet it out as well cool uh so yeah come back next week for more literary black metal fun and here's uh, grimorian verum <laughs>